This morning we have before us the last three verses of chapter 7. As I've said before, even earlier today, this chapter is kind of a, a unity. It fits together. It's, it's, in some ways it's hard to pick out pieces and talk about them separately, but uh, I think there's value in what we've done so far, and we'll consider the last three verses this morning. Kind of a summary, if you will. Uh, kind of a summary of what has gone before especially in this chapter. So we're going to look at verses 26 to 28 of Hebrews chapter 7. Let me read these again for us, as always reminding us that this is God's very own living word, Hebrews 7, 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. As we come before the word this morning, let me once again pray for us. Let's pray together. Our God and Father in heaven, again we come before your word and again we ask that you would bless this time. We crave your blessing. We crave that you would fulfill your own promises that as your word goes out it does not return to you void. Instead may it accomplish everything you purpose for it and be successful in everything for which you have sent it. For us this morning, we pray as always for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us in abundance so that our eyes might be open to see and our ears might be open to hear what you would have us learn from your word this morning. And in so learning that you would become to us a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, so that we might walk as you would have us walk, as your people, following after you, following after Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. I've said before, I think even recently, that I, I'm a puzzle solver. I love to solve puzzles. And when I was a kid especially, um, jigsaw puzzles. The more pieces, the better. Uh, the more <laughs> if you heard that on the recording, that was the boingy thing that protects the door from hitting the wall. <laughs> anyway, jigsaw puzzles. Love them. Except you get those jigsaw puzzles that are a landscape, and they have what? A whole mess of sky. And it's all the same color. Or just minor variations of shade from one piece to another. And you have to laboriously sit there and see if the pieces match. The color, the shape. It's not like you can find, oh, here's a flower. Let me find all the flower pieces and put them together. It's this tedious matching Does it fit? Does it fit in shape? Does it fit in color? Blah, blah, blah. It can be long. It can be very frustrating. And that's probably frustrating for me because, like most people, I like things to fit. I like things to work. I like them to fit together. Um, And that's how I think most of us are. Not just doing puzzles, but especially true at an interpersonal level. Think of how hard, for example how hard we try to find the right person for the right job. Employers go to 
tremendous lengths to write out job descriptions and publish them in such a way that people will find them and and the right person who fits the job description just perfectly will be the one person they find and they'll have this glorious meeting of employer and employee and everything will be harmonious and they'll ride off into the sunset together and life will be wonderful. It's amazing to me how this process works and there are companies out there that try to help facilitate it. But I thought, you know, I'm going to go online. I went to the online version of the Orange County Register and looked at a couple pretty typical employment ads. Think of this. Here's one for a pharmaceutical company, a a technician. Has to be detail-oriented, results-oriented, possess good communication and writing skills, capable of performing assigned production duties, and flexible in adapting to changing work priorities. Well, that doesn't leave anything out. (laughs) You have to be a master at everything. But here are the details. Must be able to operate pharmaceutical manufacturing equipment, including automated aseptic fill lines, washers, ovens, and autoclaves. Must be able to set up, adjust, sanitize, and perform minor maintenance on equipment in the whole sterile filling area. Must be able to use aseptic techniques to conduct aseptic filtration and filling of the finished product. Wow. You have to be a master at everything and all these incredibly particular (laughs) details. Who fits that description? That's how precise we become. Here's another one. For something as simple as a maintenance foreman. Does maintenance and coordinates... Estimates of time and material to complete maintenance jobs, schedules staff, uh, estimates the, the cost of projects, maintains a healthy safety, healthy and safety uh, environment, um, performs maintenance, repair and construction. Uh, it's for school buildings and facilities, trains others, um, assists managers, uh, coordinates personnel, contractors, uh, and performs other duties as required. And you think maintenance technician. I do maintenance around my house. I can, I can do certain repairs. I can, I can do this. And then you read the description and go, they're looking for someone who's an expert in, the, in some very detailed tasks. We want, we want a fit. We want the right fit. We want an exact fit. We don't want someone we have to train or fit or, or, or mold into the position. Give me someone who's read, you know, ready to run. Well, that's the job environment. Think of how obsessive we are when it comes to that most personal relationship, love. We read about Jacob and and Rachel, the love that they had for one another, a match made in heaven, we could say. Think how hard we try to find that match, that perfect fit made in heaven. Think of all the ads that you hear on the radio or see on TV, and you know the names. eHarmony, Christian Mingle, Match.com. We will give you a battery of tests and ask you all sorts of questions, and we've got all these people in our database, and we can find you just the right person. Sometimes it works. Praise God that it does. But it's, it, we're treating, we're treating it a very powerful personal relationship, almost like that jigsaw puzzle with all those blue sky pieces, hoping that we can just fit the right thing in just perfectly. Fill out the holes, fill out the spaces in our lives. 
Well, I say all this as illustration for what I think this passage is about here at the end of chapter 7. We need someone who is fitting for us. We need a high priest who is fitting for us. And that high priest, that person, is Jesus Christ. Verse 26 in our translation, the ESV says, that it was indeed fitting that we, we should have such a high priest. I rather like the, uh, the translation of the New King James, which says, such a high priest was fitting for us. I think that captures the language just a little bit better. Such a high priest, Jesus himself, was fitting for us. Here's the guy who comes together and fits what we need perfectly. And that's what the text has been arguing and summarizes up here. Employers have a need. People who want to marry have a need. I have a need to put those stupid blue sky pieces together. But when it comes to our spiritual walk, our need is incredibly great. And in these verses that I do think sum up chapter 7, we are taught and reminded that that need, that great, that incredible need has been met by Jesus, sent to us by God himself, appointed to that task by God's own oath, who swore by himself that Jesus would be the high priest that we need. This morning I want to work backwards in the text. Start at verse 28 and work back to verse 26 and cover each verse in turn. God did this for us, verse 28 tells us, by appointing his own son by his own oath. I want to look at that first. Then in verse 27, consider that what Jesus did is permanent. Once for all, says the text. And then work our way back to verse 26, that our need is great. And look at the, the, the depth, the expanse, the magnitude of our need, and how Jesus is the, the solution that fits that need perfectly. All right, so let's start at verse 28. Again, these verses kind of summarizing chapter 7. Chapter 7 itself builds off of the end of chapter 6, where we read that Jesus has gone into the holy place behind the curtain, gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the chapter goes on, as we read earlier, to explain that Melchizedek is just a shadow, just a type or pattern of the reality that came in Jesus Christ. A reality that was necessary because of the inherent weakness, the inherent uselessness, the author says, of the law and its priest. And that the solution was even foretold by God many times, but especially in Psalm 110, this prophetic psalm, prophetic oracle that promises both a king and a priest, a priest like Melchizedek, not like Aaron. A priest who doesn't die. A priest not by descent or by genealogy, but by God's own appointment. God appointed him by his own oath, swearing by himself that he would keep this promise to send a high priest like Melchizedek. An echo of how he swore by himself to keep the promises that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 22. And so the chapter concludes this this one long argument or presentation by reminding us 
that the law appointed priests in their weakness. They die. There's a lot of them. Their sacrifices are many. Their sacrifices are repeated because they cannot make mankind God's people. They cannot make them perfect. So the author says that astonishing thing that we saw last week, that the law itself is weak and useless. Just a shadow of a better reality. A lesson to those under it and to us today who look back at it. To look for something better. Indeed, look for someone better who indeed can make us perfect so that we can be in relationship with a perfect and holy God. Verse 28 reminds us to look to the promises of God, of a son, a seed to come who would fulfill all of God's promises. So God made an oath to give us a better law and a better priest and a better covenant, and he appointed his own son to do this. By the word of the oath, he appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. And that should echo in our minds, if you can remember back, all the way to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. What, what did we read there? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Many times, many ways, many prophets, but now the Son speaks. What we've been seeing in chapters 6 and 7 is an echo of that. Many priests, many sacrifices, many offerings. Indeed, we can even say many laws. But now, the Son, the High Priest, the law in Him, if I can put it that way, the final once-for-all sacrifice. The Son, perfect forever, is the one who has accomplished this. We're going to see that perfection as we get into verse 26. But if we step back a little bit to verse 27, that tells us in what manner the Son accomplished His work, how He fulfilled the promises of God to save His people. And the key phrase there (laughs) is he did it once for all when he offered himself. So we're reminded that the Old Testament priests offered sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did it once for all when he offered up himself. This encompasses the, the whole shadowy, meaning of the Old Testament law and sacrifices and how they pointed to Christ and how everything that they pointed to is accomplished in him when he offered himself as a sacrifice. Now there's some concern about this claim in verse 27 that um, the author is claiming that the high priests offered daily these sacrifices when we read in God's law in the Old Testament that they only did this once a year on the Day of Atonement. Um, the most critical commentators see this as an error by the author. Nevertheless, there are many theories that explain it. I'm not going to go through them. I think we can make sense of it in this way. First of all, we know from Jewish sources that there was this prevailing idea in Judaism at the time 
that the daily sacrifices that were made, and there were daily sacrifices according to the law, had a, a similar element or component into them as the sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement. That is, they were made for sin. Um, and so Jewish scholars interpreted the daily sacrifices in this way as being for sin, both for the priests and for the people. The great sacrifice was the one on the Day of Atonement, but they saw the daily sacrifices as being just a part and parcel of that. And it's kind of reinforced by the idea that um, while the high priest didn't necessarily offer these daily sacrifices, nevertheless they were done under his authority. And just like the Bible says David offered a sacrifice when David didn't do any of the cutting or offering, the priest did it. In a similar way, it was done under David's authority. These daily sacrifices were made under the high priest's authority, his responsibility. So that again, they could be said legitimately to be offered by the high priest. Um, And I would then add my own little thought that not all the sacrifices for sin are necessarily sacrifices of atonement in the same way as those offered on the Day of Atonement. Because no matter the time of year, if an Israelite sinned, they had to take an offering and uh, make an offering to deal with that sin. So in the end, I don't think this language is really that much of a problem. I think people get themselves wrapped up about things that are really not that big a deal. Because the bigger, the bigger issue and the more wonderful issue is this, that Jesus came and offered himself once for all time. The language in the Greek here is emphatic. It's once for all. It's done. It's over. It's completed. It never has to be repeated again. It's perfect. It's complete. We Protestants take this passage and reject completely the idea that the Roman Catholic Church has that the Lord's Supper is somehow a a repeat, or they would more carefully say a participation in that one sacrifice. Um, But clearly what they do, if you've ever been to a Roman Catholic Mass, they enact a sacrifice. And so it has that appearance of a repeated sacrifice over and over and over again for sins. Protestants have, I think, rightly rejected that. As an aside, it then makes no sense for Protestants to talk about having an altar at the front of their church. We don't sacrifice anything. (laughs) Jesus was sacrificed once for all. So no altars, no altar calls. It doesn't make sense in our context. All right. What does it really mean for us practically? It means all the work. It means all the rituals, all the obligations of religion, organized religion, are done with. We don't have to go through these things to be perfect or to be right with God. At our home, we've been watching a series on Scientology and the incredible, silly in the end, but the incredible lengths these people go to to try and achieve what really is perfection. The money they spend, the the things they do. And you can think of any religion. Look at all the sacrifices or all the the duties and obligations that fall into these various different religions. The work, 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 work that goes into being a good member of another religion. When Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice, as the high priest who offered that sacrifice, he did it once for all. That means it's done. 
It is over. It's complete. It's accomplished. It's finished. The rituals, the rites, the works, well, they're, they're what the author calls them. Weak and useless. They can't bring us to perfection. They can't bring us to a right relationship with God. They can't make us acceptable to Him. So Jesus did it for us. And it was done, complete, once for all. So we as Christians should have freedom. We should know and understand and experience that freedom. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Free from all those rituals. Free from all those legal obligations. Free from worry about our status with God. Free from doubt. Free from the curse and condemnation of the law. Free from God's wrath. Free from rebellion against God. Free to approach God without fear. Free to appeal to God directly without having to go through some intermediary. We don't need saints. We don't need priests. We don't need holy people to go to God on our behalf. We can go straight to Him. Free to serve Him without fear of our inadequacies and errors and sins because they've been paid for, dealt with, once and for all. And so what Jesus says becomes very powerful to us, or should, in John 8.36. I think this is one of the more remarkable things in all of Scripture. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. You are free. That's what it means that Jesus has accomplished this once and for all. And so we back up into verse 26 and see the great need that we had and how it was met in the Son, the fitting high priest for us. We need the Son because of our sins. We need the Son because something needs to deal with those sins. Our needs are huge because our sins are huge. They condemn us to judgment and to God's wrath, even to death, even to eternal punishment from God himself the unending wrath of God that we deserve because we've sinned with a high hand against Him. So our situation is somewhat like, but at the same time very different from those jigsaw puzzles versus full of sky blue pieces, or employers looking for the perfect employee, or finding the right spouse. There you've got kind of a give and take situation. I need something, I find something. We bring both to the table and we fit them together. Each fills the gaps that the other has. But our situation with God isn't like that. (laughs) We are not mutual partners filling each other's needs. He has no needs. Our needs are incalculable. And the language of verse 26 makes this clear. In what it says about Jesus and who he is, and then by implication what that says about us without him, Look at what it says about Jesus in verse 26. Five things. He's fitting for us because he's holy, he's innocent, he is unstained, he is separated from sinners, and he is exalted above the heavens. Five declarations about Christ and who he is. And if you reflect upon those, we know as sinners, (laughs) we are none of those. 
Not even close. We contribute nothing, or as has been put by others, we contribute nothing but our own sin, which, rather than moving us closer to God, moves us away from him. So look at these in turn. Jesus is holy. That's a different word than the normal word for holy in Greek. That could, it's a word that has other connotations of being devout or being pious. So if ever there was a true worshiper of God, it was Jesus himself. He came to God. He came to worship God as one who was already holy. He needed no intercession. He needed no sacrifice for sin. And so his worship to the Father was always perfect and sincere and true and without any error of any kind. Think about that, because that's not us. We're not holy. We're not as devout as we should be. As sinners, we can't even approach God by ourselves. As sinners, we're distracted by and attracted to idols. We serve idols that others put in front of us, and we even make our own idols that we prefer to serve and worship. So we are not holy, and we are not devout. Jesus, it says, secondly, is innocent. He never sinned. He never broke God's law. He never, therefore, incurred God's judgment or wrath. And, and, and look at ourselves, and we know we're anything but innocent. We sin daily, if not hourly, if not minute by minute, in thought and word and deed. Our thoughts are sinful. Our words are sinful. Our actions are sinful. We're lawbreakers, and we're guilty of breaking God's law. Completely different than... Jesus. The third thing we're told about Jesus is he's unstained. So because he never sinned, because of his own holiness, because of that pious devotion, the stain of sin, the pollution of sin, never attached itself to him. We, by contrast, are are completely stained by sin, polluted by it. As James tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, even Even one little sin makes us guilty of breaking the whole law. And just as that one sin makes us guilty of the whole law, one sin also pollutes us through and through. I I remember the idea that a former pastor used to use this illustration. You can take the best, best vintage bottle of wine you can think of and take a little dropper and put some raw sewage in there, the stuff that comes out of your toilet, And would you drink that wine? Not a chance. (laughs) That's disgusting. That's what sin does to us. Even if we were a vintage bottle of wine, which we're not. But if you want to think of yourself that way, every sin is like a drop of raw sewage. And it permeates everything. So he is unstained. We're stained through and through. And it's disgusting. The fourth thing we're told is that Jesus is separated from sinners. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have any contact with sinners, because clearly we read the stories in the Gospels about how he associated with them during his earthly ministry and was even criticized for it, an invalid, unjust criticism. Because even though Jesus hung out with sinners, he did not join with them in their sin. And that's what this phrase is, is talking about. He separated from sinners. He did not join in their sin. Tempted by it, exposed to it, 
but separated from it. And that separates him from us normal, ordinary, everyday, vile sinners. Jesus can't be counted among sinners, but we in our sin make up a grand throng, a grand company of sinners. And then the fifth thing we're told about Jesus, that also tells us something about ourselves, that Jesus is exalted above the heavens. And that's because he's God. He's God's son. It's a recognition of this reality, but also a recognition of his holiness and piety, his innocence, his purity, his separateness from sinners. We're not exalted. We are instead brought low by our own sin, condemned to death, condemned to be buried in the ground. Scripture loves this idea. It's in Genesis 3, Psalm 90, Ecclesiastes 3, and in other places. The idea that from dust we were made, to dust we will return. So here's this contrast between Jesus who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, and by implication us, who are completely the opposite. So in the end, what makes Jesus fitting for us, a high priest fitting for us, a high priest that meets our need, is that he indeed meets all of our needs, and he meets them completely. We don't bring anything positive, anything that contributes in any way to the relationship, to the equation. And so we need someone to do everything for us, everything for us, so that we might be holy, so that we might be innocent, so that we might be unstained, so that we might be separated, so that even we might be exalted in the heavens. And that's what Jesus does. Brings everything we need. Everything we need he provided and still provides to this day. And as verse 27 says, when he offered himself up, he did it once, he did it for all. It's done. It's accomplished. It's over. So are you a sinner? Well, of course you are, because we all sin. But if you're a sinner, your needs are great. And if your needs are great, then you need Jesus. You need to repent and believe in Him as Savior. He fills every need you have. In Christ, we are now holy. His righteousness credited our account. The Holy Spirit working in us to produce holiness in our lives while sin is something we still combat. We're innocent. We're declared innocent before God. No, more, no longer guilty of breaking God's law. We're also unstained. He works in us to remove that stain from us and will ultimately glorify us at the last day. That dust to which we returned rises in a new body, a glorious body, a heavenly body, to be eternal with God. We're set apart from sinners. We're now part of the people of God. We're now saints. We're now holy. We have the promise of eternal life, of joy, of peace, of happiness. And we will be exalted in the heavens with our Lord and Savior because we are part of his body. We're part of his family. 
We're part of his people. We're the temple in which he lives. Repeat what I said last week. This, this reality, this hope that we have cannot be taken away. It cannot fail. Because God himself swore it can't be taken away. It cannot fail. And swore by his own name. You and I, <laughs> we are needy people. But so are our friends and our family and our neighbors. All those around us are just as needy. You have Jesus. Praise God. They need Jesus. They need to be told about him and how he meets their needs. Every single one of their needs. We who believe also need Jesus. We need to come to him again and again and again to worship him, to serve him, to learn more about him, for our love for him, our thankfulness for what he's done for us, to grow and increase. And he does this for us as well. Our high priest is fitting for us, willing and able to meet all of our needs. So let's let him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do again praise you and thank you for your word and what it teaches us. Thankful for Jesus, our high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sin and from sinners, now exalted in the heavenly places. We're thankful for the work that you do in us, through him, and by the power of your spirit, to make us holy, to declare us innocent, to make us unstained, to separate us from sin and from sinners, but also ultimately to exalt us in the heavens. Thankful that Christ's work is complete and we no longer have to strive and work because he offered himself once for all. And thankful for your promise, guaranteed by your oath, that these things are true for us and for our salvation. Help us to cling to these promises and never forget and always to consider the great work that Jesus has done for us and for our salvation. We pray all of these things in his wonderful, glorious, and matchless name. Amen.